Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, executive editor of Recode. You may know me as an extremely, extremely glib person, but in my spare time, I talk tech and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. On Friday, MSNBC aired the second episode of my TV show, Revolution, in which Chris Hayes and I spoke to Apple CEO Tim Cook. Of course, MSNBC had to edit that interview fit into an hour-long program, but today we're delighted to bring you the full uncut interview. We talked to Tim the day after Apple held an education-focused event in Chicago, but we also got him talking about privacy, Facebook, DACA, and so much more. Let's take a listen. Welcome to Lane Tech College Prep High School here on the north side of the great city of Chicago. We're here to interview the leader of a company that completely revolutionized the way we communicate, one of the most recognizable brands on the planet, and also, for sure, the most valuable company in the entire world, Apple. And it's poised to potentially become the world's first trillion-dollar company, raising new questions about its role and responsibility in everything from job creation to education to privacy protection. We're going to let talk about that and more. So let's bring out the CEO of Apple, Tim Cook. Well, Tim. Thank you for coming. I think they're all excited to get new iPhones from you. Um, just to be clear, this is not a discussion that you're not announcing a new iPhone here. Is that correct? Um, that's correct. Because you sometimes you tease yeah, them. Yeah, sometimes. Sometimes. Well, we're actually going to be talking about education. So yesterday, you had an event um, here in Chicago about education and about iPads and different things. Why don't we talk a little bit about what you were announcing and what you're trying to do? We announced a new curriculum called Everyone Can Create. Mm -hmm in recognition that in addition to the regular courses that people get in school, that you could actually, if you intersect those with technology, you can amplify the level of learning and creativity uh, in these classes. And so, in, in, and of course, in addition to that, we announced a new iPad. We brought the uh, several features of the iPad Pro down to the iPad. So now you can draw on the iPad and Teachers can annotate new classroom software just for the teacher. Uh, it was an incredible, incredible series of announcements. So why are you doing this? What's the, the goal? I mean, you guys started early on in education. Yeah. I remember saving box tops or something to buy apples. Yeah, at the I time. remember that. Yeah. Um, but what, what is the, the goal here? Because one of the, the areas, Apple was early in education, and then Google yeah. came in, and have, there's Chromebooks all over the place. What is the thinking from a corporate point of view of what you're trying to do? Well, we've been in education for 40 years, and since the founding of the company, right. you know, this was uh, something that Steve felt very, very uh, passionate about, and uh, that has stayed with the company for forever. Uh, the, the purpose is that our view is that education is a great equalizer of people, mm -hmm. and that if you look at uh, many of the issues that we face in society today, that you can find their root in that people don't have access to quality education. Maybe they don't have access at all. Uh, and that, that uh, the country should be investing more in that. And what we've identified some areas that we think we can help in. Uh, one of those is encoding education. Right. And so we not only uh, have a curriculum around coding, but we crafted our own programming language, created it. And we created one that was as easy to learn as our products are to use. Uh, and, and then we made an app for it. 
uh, that made it really easy to use. People could learn to code at home or in school. And now we're in the process of, of rolling that out everywhere. Uh, last year, we took it also to community colleges and technical colleges because the, the reality is that you don't need a four-year uh, college education to learn to code. Uh, I've seen some incredible things happening from uh, high school students and a lot of things happening, great things happening in community colleges. Um, and, and so we've a lot of focus on coding and now we're adding the focus on creativity, which Apple has always been at the core of Apple. Uh, and not just for the arts classes, right. although those are incredibly important for people, uh, but because of our long, long time standing at this intersection of the liberal arts and technology. Which Steve, that was a big. It's, yes, with Steve and, uh, and the company forever is that we've always infused huma uh, humanity into our products. And so, because we believe that that intersection it's where we can amplify learning and creativity. And so now we're, we're teaching people from photography to, to filmmaking uh, and helping them integrate it into the regular courses that people are taking on history or mathematics or, or whatever. I'm going to ask a question about sort of yeah. tech and education more broadly, because it's, it's been an interesting relationship through the years. It's obviously something yeah. that uh, Silicon Valley depends on tremendously, right? You need people yeah. that, that know how to code and have yeah. a good education. And there's also this other way in which you've seen lots of uh, folks from tech, the Gates Foundation after Bill Gates retired from Microsoft mm -hmm. and Zuckerberg, kind of view education as a problem to solve, mm -hmm. right? Like, it's not working, we need to come in there and do it. And there's been a lot of sort of, I think, hard lessons of humility there, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of solutions that have been tried that it looks harder than, than the maybe it is. Do you feel like you're, you have a sense of the challenges of education that you hear from the folks you're partnering with. Yeah, I think we've been in the classroom for 40 years, and so that, that's, that's a big difference. I think too many people are uh, standing on the sidelines and, say, and blaming the teacher or blaming the, the administration or blaming whatever. Mm -hmm. And uh, honestly, our, our perspectives are uh, teachers are jewels, and we're, we're not, we don't believe that technology can replace teachers. We think it's the amplification. Uh, our products are tools, and we make tools uh, for people to be able to amplify their performance, right? They help people, not replace people. And so it's the intersection of an inspirational teacher that cares deeply, and we Honestly, 99.9% .9 of the teachers I've met fall in that category. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and they want to have technology to help them deliver their lessons and such. But one of the things you focus on and announced is this uh, arrangement with the city of Chicago and Northwestern University. Yes, yes. Which you're going to help teachers learn. That's right. I want to get into the idea of whether everybody should code. Yeah, and, and so what we're doing is, what we found is that most all teachers want a level of coding for their classes. You know, I talked to a, a teacher in Toronto a couple months ago that had integrated coding into a mathematics class, mm -hmm. and she found that her students learned the mathematics lessons much faster and much deeper 
with coding introduced, mm -hmm. you know, our products help engage students in the learning process more. I mean, this is a, this is a proven thing. And so what we're doing with Northwestern is working between Northwestern and Lane Tech, which is the high school that you're, you're at, obviously, working together to offer training to every teacher in the, in the system that wants to come, free training, mm -hmm. free professional development, and helping them integrate coding into huh. their classes. Let me ask a question yeah. to follow up that because you know equity is a real issue, right? Yeah, in education, particularly when we're talking about things like coding, right? Schools that have access to that kind of thing. And we were here in Chicago a year ago. We did yeah. a town hall uh, down on the south side, and I just wanted to play a little clip of someone talking about their frustration with their perception about how investments happen in an equity line, and get your reaction to that. Yeah, just take a listen. Well, you can invest $100 million into DePaul Basketball Arena when they can practice at the United Center for free, and $16.4 million into Uptown to build upscale apartments. When you can build these new bus stops we got now downtown, but walk in our neighborhoods and not a million is coming. When you, we walking past boarded up schools, boarded up houses, they knock it down with red X's with no plan to redevelop. How do you make sure that something like this, project like this, gets to everyone in the city? Yeah, it's a good question. And so, one, uh, we, we price the things as low as we can, right? And so uh, we took a, an iPad, put iPad Pro features in it, and we're charging $299. And the software is all for free. Mm -hmm. And the cloud storage is free. And, and, and so those are some things we can do. We can also work with Northwestern, as we talked about before, to deliver education uh, for free for pro professional development for the And that's teachers. available to everyone in the city, right? And I mean, all the, all the teachers. Everyone, everyone, the whole, the whole system. And we can prepare the curriculum for free. Curriculum development costs a lot of money. And, uh, and so we can, we can do that for free as well. And I think when you begin to think about that these are uh, not an annual cost, but a cost over the life of a product, might be three years, might be four years, it becomes a, a very reasonable expenditure and one that in a uh, reasonably wealthy country like the United States, we should as a nation fund. So we, we, we can talk about the cost though. It, lots of money has been sunk into tech in classrooms over the years. Much of it, many people feel, didn't go anywhere because either they didn't have the right teachers, they, didn't have, they weren't teaching the right things, or they weren't focused on the, the right things. So how do you change the cost structure for this? Because it can't be tech companies subsidizing everybody, or could it be? I mean, you seem to all have a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I would take exception to that, that there hasn't been any good from it. Okay. I've seen a lot of good. I, I've been to, to classrooms in the United States and, and around the world. I've seen a lot of kids getting a lot of good out of the technology. If you've ever been to a classroom where students were using our products in them, you will find them incredibly more engaged than with no technology. Right. And I think teachers are doing a great job of deploying the products in a way that makes sense for their classes. And, and so I think there's... I personally believe there's a lot more right about public education than is wrong. Mm -hmm. and, and so I, 
I strongly reject the people standing on the sidelines constantly pointing to everything as if everything is bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's just not true. I mean, uh, you not you can just wander through the halls here and poke your head into any classroom and see a lot of right. Mm-hmm. Now, is everything right? No. And I, I do think, uh, you know, change needs to happen. Change needs to happen everywhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're all evolving and learning and society's changing. But I think to Chris's question, yeah. here we're at Lane Tech, this is obviously a high level, high school where a lot of resources are poured yeah. into. What do you do about what that man said? Like, how do you get, make sure that all the parts of the city, of this city or any cities where there are underserved communities get that? Because you guys well, have been it, experimenting around the country with that idea. It starts with, you know, my, my own view of, of this, Kara, uh, is that if, if you look at one of the things I think all of us have learned, if we didn't know before, was that uh, globalization and technology have benefited in the aggregate many, many countries around the world, maybe all countries likely, but it hasn't done so evenly. No. Not evenly within a country, not evenly even between countries. And so what does that mean? It, It means that I think our desire as a nation to offer everyone equal opportunity, that we have not succeeded in that. Because that all too often, uh, equal opportunity means if you happen to be born in the right zip code. Right. right. And so we've got to get away always. from this. Yeah. We, we have to get away from this and, and put, place our funding, our investment into kids. If we invest a lot there, then a lot of the things that happen in society later on uh, probably don't happen any longer. And because, because you're, you're working then with an, a different economic equation, people feel like they have opportunity, they can do better than their parents, and, and so on and so forth. Um, I want to go to uh, yeah. an expert on education yeah. that we have here, uh, the CEO of the Chicago Public Schools, Janice Jackson. Is here. Uh, this is a question that comes from Twitter, um, and, and it relates to exactly what we're talking about. Right? Like, how do you make this work in the classroom as a sort of force for equity as well? John Herson says, what is the point at which additional technology in the classroom stops helping students and starts distracting them? Well, I think it all depends on the teacher. And so what we're excited about with Apple's approach is, again, this intersection between technology. And it has teachers at the center, which is critically important. Um, I think that when teachers plan lessons well, when students know how to use technology to be more efficient and effective in the classroom, I think it can only enhance the learning that's taken place. Um, I was a classroom teacher. There are many classroom teachers in this room that will tell you that students find all types of ways to be distracted. But there is one. <laughs> One way. I, I was able to be distracted even before yeah. a smartphone, yeah. amazingly. It, true, but what I have also observed is that when you bring technology into the room, when you allow students to create something new, when you allow them to take ownership of their learning, they become much more engaged. And frankly, technology is a great way to do that. So we're really excited about some of the opportunities, as well as the access to professional development for teachers throughout the city. We're really excited about this partnership. So, Dr. Jackson, uh, yeah. I'm curious, when 
when you think about though, the costs of doing this, again, yeah. um, you have to decide between Google, when Apple, Microsoft has been in there, all kinds of companies. How do you sort it out? Because at some point you have to write a check. Yeah. Well, first, I think we have to, we think about diversity, obviously. We give a lot of autonomy to school leaders as well as classroom teachers. And it's really about the accessibility of the tool, the functionality. What I like about what was presented today is that it is a great equalizer. There are a lot of tools that, you know, were not easily accessible for some of our students, some of the neighborhoods that you mentioned earlier. And now those tools are now being brought down to a price point that schools can afford. It's in line with a lot of the other devices that we already purchased. Right now, about we have about 80,000 iPads in Chicago public schools and over 100,000 apps have been downloaded by our teachers. And so we see that the desire and the demand is there. It's our job as a district to make sure that, that those resources are provided throughout the city. The last point I'll say, which isn't talked about a lot, is that Chicago Public Schools has made a tremendous investment in our um, infrastructure. And so in a lot of our schools, in particular, in some of the areas that you know have been left out, we've made great investments in the infrastructure. And now adding these devices and more tools just only you know serves as a great equalizer. And I, we have a teacher here today who can talk about her experience right in the types of communities we're talking about today. And kids are getting an amazing experience. Yeah, Kasha Durza, right? Yes, um, that's you, uh, you're uh, a STEM teacher, K-8 school on the southwest side, right? Yes, that's correct. How do you uh, integrate technology into your, your daily teaching routine? Every day I use technology, and what I try to make sure to do is that all my students know that it's a tool that they can all use. It doesn't matter what background they're from, whether they're English language learners. My school is 96% Hispanic, um, and all the students have the opportunity from kindergarten to eighth grade to use technology. And they've been using it as a great tool to learn. Like we all said, they're really engaged with the technology that we're using. But, uh, but Kesha, let me ask you, and also uh, Dr. Jackson, um, with, when you're thinking about coding, does everybody have to code? I mean, it's been a big push. I know Montana's uh, requiring it now in schools. Um, uh, Idaho is working. All these states are pushing it. It seems like the, and Tim, I'd love you to sort of win it. Yeah. Yeah. Is it just the latest answer? Because everyone's like, code, you must code, you must code. It's almost like you have to speak, you know, you have to learn history or something I else. I think mm -hmm. that the reasoning behind it is, Problem solving, mm -hmm. you know, that's a tool that we all need to learn in entering any job force. And learning how to code is really enhancing that and making sure that everybody knows how to solve problems and how to take on a challenge. And it's okay to make mistakes. Um, and once they learn that and those skills are available through coding, um, they are able to apply them and then be successful in, in the future. But to answer your question, yes, everybody has to code in Chicago because yes. it's a graduation requirement. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I want to be clear on that. Uh, and the goal is not to turn, you know, 380,000 students into computer scientists, but really to demystify technology and to make sure that they understand that this is a language and that these are skills that transcend disciplines. They can use it in math courses. They can use the logic that they learn in any course that they're taking. And so it really is about bringing in the type of robust learning um, that we see in schools throughout the country to every school in Chicago. And I've just been, I mean, when I first heard about it, I'm a former history teacher, so I couldn't imagine 
imagine what that would look like in my classroom, you know, 15 or 20 years ago. But the teachers are really embracing it. And through the training that we're going to offer our teachers uh, at Northwestern through Apple support is just amazing. And it'll demystify coding, not only for the students, but for the adults. I know at Escuela, we were just over here chatting about how the students are teaching the teachers. And so I think as adults, we're coming into this and learning the importance and it's being driven by the technology, but it's mostly being driven by the demand from our students. They learn differently and they are asking us to catch up with the 21st century. And Tim, could you, because yeah, the idea is I, like, some people could look, you want workers. Like there's, like there's such a deficit in the job. How can you make that argument that it's coding is the answer? Well, I, I want America to be strong. Yeah. First and foremost, I want America to be strong. And I, I believe that I, one uh, base for that is I think everyone needs to, to learn to code. I think that uh, in today's environment, software touches everything we do all day long, from uh, the way you get your news to the way you order things. Uh, software is nothing more, or coding is nothing more than a way to express yourself. It's a language. And uh, just as, as was pointed out, the core skills in coding, critical thinking, problem solving, these are things that are, are modern day skills required for living. You need critical thinking to detect what's fake and what's real, right? You need a you lot need, more than that. Well. <laughs> <laughs> And, and problem-solving skill is a basic skill, whether you're in construction, whether you're in farming. Right. It doesn't matter what kind of field you're in. Problem-solving is a basic skill. And so it's not our expectation that everybody becomes a software programmer for life by any means. The vast majority will not. But it's important that people understand the basics of coding, just like it's important for people to understand the basics of mathematics, or other kind of core subjects. Also, just one other point. The, the, the key point in our uh, focus on creativity, which was really hit on earlier, what, is that we want kids to be creators, not merely consumers. Occasionally, we all consume things. We read the news. We're a consumer of the news. But you don't want somebody to be 100% consumption. Mm -hmm. You want kids to create to write, to uh, make a movie, to be able to do a podcast, to um, invent. Uh, all of these things require creative skills, right? And, and so not just to memorize things and, and because this is not going to help them in the future. Yeah, the, the, the future is, is a, I think, a question that hangs over all this discussion, right? Like, what are the future jobs? What does the future work in America look like? What skill sets do people have? Will there be jobs, right? And what do they, what do they look like? We want to talk about all that uh, right after we take a quick break. Don't go anywhere. the last section talking about creativity. And one of the things that I hear a lot in Silicon Valley is if you're not creative, you're not going to have a job that they'll be replaced uh, by a computer in some way, either by AI or automation or something like that. We can talk about that, but um, besides coding, let's talk about where jobs are because there's people working already and they have to be retrained and changed for the economy. Um, you pledged 20,000 more jobs in the U.S. Um, and you're opening some tech support center campuses also in the U.S., 
Talk about where jobs are going. You're also pushing advanced manufacturing by funding $5 billion um, with manufacturers in the U.S., like Gorilla Glass in Kentucky. Um, there's a Texas plant. You're doing things around lasers and facial recognition. Can you talk about where jobs are and what people who are currently working have to do to educate themselves? Number one, I think we all have to get comfortable that uh, education is sort of lifelong, a lifelong requirement. It's, it's no longer sufficient to uh, go to school for 12 years and maybe some more in, in college and then call it quits for a lifetime. Jobs will be cannibalized uh, over time and replaced by others. And, and uh, now, those people that embrace that, they're going to do it incredibly well. Uh, and the, certainly the system to help people retrain has to be put in place and largely... Um, uh, needs a lot of work right now uh, uh, to do that. But I think there are going to be incredible jobs in AI, AR. I'm, I'm a huge fan of augmented reality. I think it is huge. You are. It's profound, right? Um, there will be it's still incredible jobs in many, many fields that exist today. I, I think we're probably, I, I think the, the narrative around doom and gloom mm -hmm. is uh, not correct. Well, what is it then? Well, <clears throat> I think it's more of, if you look back in history, when I started working as an intern, if I had a question for the accounting department, I went to the accounting manager and they would take a journal and open up the journal and find where they had manually recorded something. Obviously, spreadsheets came along and that automated some of that and then... Uh, more and more things happen over the time with enterprise systems, et cetera. And so we've had this significant productivity change in the United States for a long time. And there have been jobs that have been displaced, but frankly, many more jobs have been created than displaced. What we didn't do a good job of is taking care of the people that were displaced and getting them into the jobs that were being created. That is a muscle the U.S. has not done a good job of building. And for not, for, not for lack of trying. I mean, the, the, you know, this solution, right, you've got the Trade Adjustment Act. You've got all sorts of job retraining funding starting all the way, way back in Clinton. You know, the, the, the idea was, look, we now live in this era of creative destruction. Mm -hmm. Jobs are going to go away. And the solution to that is retraining. It hasn't really worked, right? I mean, I, on scale, it hasn't really been effective. Like, I, is there a responsibility that you at Apple or other tech companies have to be part of that rather than that being something the, 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 the yeah, state does? Yes, I, I think as, as is the case in most huge problems that are complex, uh, we should not all sit around waiting for government to tell us what to do. Mm -hmm. You know, th this should be something that government and business are working together on. And I do believe we have a responsibility. I, I, I feel it. And, uh, and so what are we doing? We're taking the things that we know well. We know coding. Uh, and we went to the extreme of creating our own language so it wouldn't be hard to learn, right? And, and we've crafted a curriculum for community colleges, technical schools, vocational schools, which is where a lot of retraining can happen. It's in where it does happen. Ways. It happens. Yeah. And... I've been, I've been out meeting with several uh, leaders from, from community colleges that do a marvelous job at this. Now, they're underfunded, mm -hmm. 
And, and so there's some profound things to change there. But I, but I have to tell you, they have been uh, among the most receptive to changing and the quickest to change. But it is a narrative from Silicon Valley that it's not, it's gonna be like farming to manufacturing, there'll be more and more jobs. Talk a little about the displaced. What yeah. can't you be doing now? What, if you're a worker, what would you be worried about? Well, I am a worker. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, of a sort. Of a sort. <laughs> of a sort. Let's do that. Let's I, I, together. <laughs> I, I, think, I think most people would say I'm a worker. But, you're a hard uh, worker, too. But, uh, but no, no, I, I think that all of us should count on there's an element of what each of us do that will be automated over time. And, and part of that, by the way, we should all say, thank God, because we're all working too much. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't, it, wouldn't society be great if we all worked a little less, but we didn't have to, to dial down our output? That wouldn't be so bad. But, but I do think that uh, we all have to get used to the idea of continually learning refreshing our skills for the jobs of tomorrow. The jobs of tomorrow right now are heavily software-based. If you look in this country today, there's a half a million jobs that are not being filled. They're all software. Mm -hmm. That half a million, there's more jobs that aren't being filled other than software, but there's a half a million just software. And so, I mean, there's a huge, that's a huge gap. Mm -hmm. That number's projected to go to two million over the next three to four years. And so that is enormous, right? And, and we've got to get more people interested in coding. We've got to uh, reach out to uh, women and underrepresented minorities that have been too low in coding. And, and I feel for Apple, we're, going to, we're taking the responsibility of doing that. We're not just saying, hey, this school only has 20% women in this curriculum, and so I can't, I can't hire any more women, mm-hmm. right? I think that's a cop-out. I think the, the businesses doing that are not viewing their responsibility correctly. Businesses should be more than about making revenues and profits. You know, businesses need to get... It's interesting to me to, to hear you sound this sort of note of optimism, right? So, and it's an old theme, right? And Keynes writes in The Economic Consequences of Our Grandchildren that the big problem of capitalism in the future is like, what are we going to do with all this time, right? We're all going to be sitting around, like, what are people going to do in all their leisure time? It hasn't worked out that way. Um, what, if you are optimistic, right? There, it seems yeah. to me there's a little tension between what Apple's balance sheet is and what your professed optimism is about what what productivity could look like, right? You guys are sitting on a lot of cash. It's been a big story that there's all this cash. And there's this question of, if that's cash sitting there on the balance sheet, what does that say about what you and the company thinks about the future is, right? That if it's sitting there, is that saying that when you make the assessment about where there are productive investments to be made, there just aren't enough because we actually aren't that optimistic about future growth? Well, well, uh, this is a long subject, but uh, we haven't had access to our cash, right? Because we're, we sell about a third of our uh, company's revenue in the United States. Right two-thirds outside the United States. Uh, We we had this crazy tax structure uh, on international earnings such that you paid uh, taxes internationally and then you paid taxes in a huge way in the United States to bring that money into the U.S. 
that's that part of the tax plan. I'm not talking about the individual pleas. I take no position on that. Uh, but that part of the tax plan, I believe, from my perspective, is good for America and will result in job growth. And uh, you can better believe that we're investing. And that was a big part of the announcement, Kara, that you just right. talked about. Right. We're putting $5 billion in advanced manufacturing. Those are vendors that work for Apple, correct? Yes, that will create enormous jobs right. in the United States. Right? What, what about jobs that, that, that Apple has in this country? Obviously, yeah. you're not going to make iPhones here. You never have. You've made them abroad the entire time. So has other, so have other companies created things. What would a bigger Apple business look like then? Well, we're, we're hiring at least 20,000 people in the U.S., right? So that's not a small amount. But, but the number of jobs we will create, including the, that work for other people, we've already created 2 million in the U.S. And a million five of those? So the iterate, the, the, as things iterate out. Well, but not too far, iterating out too far. A million and a half of those write apps for your iPhone and your iPad. A million and a half. And the, the unbelievable thing about this is the party of one can sit in the basement of their home, whether they're in a rural area, urban area, wherever they would like to be, and they can create an app, and all of a sudden, they can sell their product around the world. I mean, talk about a change. Can you imagine if you, as a, as a small business, if you wanted to sell your product worldwide a few years ago, there would have been no way. You could not have dealt, uh, done business in all these currencies in the world, in all of the languages in the world, with all of these retailers in the world. You'd never get it done. That has been an unbelievable, empowering thing. So you don't see it as like a big factor. I know President Trump has said this, that there's going to be factories and he's been pressing people. Oh, here's what I see in, in, uh, can we build, we are building things in the United States. And it's not true that iPhone isn't built in the United States. Let's talk about that for a minute. Here's Here's the truth. There are components of iPhone built in the United States. The glass is from Kentucky. There are many chips, silicon uh, chips, that are all made from all over the United States. There's equipment that goes into manufacturing that's all over the U.S. Uh, the, uh, the very sophisticated Face ID module on the iPhone 10 will be made in the United States. In Texas. In, in Texas, right. yes. And, and so there are plants going in in many different places, and we have always made many of the parts here. What people, what people just fixate on, because I think it's just, it's just a misunderstanding, is that they just see where the final product is assembled and say, oh, that is not done in the U.S. But in a global world, you begin to do things in a variety of countries. And so you source components somewhere, some other components somewhere else, you assemble yet somewhere else, and then those products go everywhere in the world. I mean, that's how a global But there's an existing works. political pressure around this idea of opening, you know, Jeff Bezos' the, the headquarters thing, the idea of it. Is that... Uh, I don't feel political pressure. I, I, look, what, what we want to do at Apple, we know that Apple could only have been created in the United States. We know that. Um, we, would, 
This company would not have been started in any other country in the world. It would not have flourished in any other country in the world. Uh, the vast majority of our research and development is done here. Uh, and, and so we love this country. You know, we are patriots. This, this is our country. And, and so what we, we, we want to create as many jobs as we can in the U.S. We don't need any political pressure for that. We've already been doing this. Mm -hmm. And... And, and we want those to be as across as much of the U.S. as possible, right? And so one thing that we've done uh, differently in the, in the past uh, few months is we've thought, you know, we've got a huge amount of people in California. We have a huge amount of people in Texas as a company. We've got a lot of uh, folks in retail throughout the United States. But we have a need for many more people somewhere. Uh, in addition to growing California and Texas, we'll continue to grow there. Um, and so we said, you know, we're going we're gonna to create a new site. And we're going to create it in a state other than California and Texas. There's 48 Just, more. Yeah. There's plenty more. Do that in your head. There's plenty yeah. more. And we're not, we're not doing the, the uh, beauty contest kind of thing. We're not, that's not... Apple, mm -hmm. um, what, do you, what do you think about the beauty contest model? I'm watching cities um, line up to essentially throw subsidies and in some cases hundreds of millions of tax dollars uh, at Amazon to get them to come. You've got Foxconn in Wisconsin that signed this big contract and the subsidies are now looking like they're hundreds of millions of dollars there. What do you make of that kind of competition? I think that each state, I think the great thing about the U.S., is, uh, is freedom. And I think if states want to compete for things, then, then God bless them. I think that's, that's sort of, that's a part of America. And, uh, and so I don't, I don't condemn it. I think it's their decision. But from our point of view, um, we didn't want to create this contest. Uh, because I think, because I think what comes out of that is, uh, you wind up putting people through a ton of work to select one. And, and so you wind up, that is a case where you have a winner and a lot of losers, unfortunately. I don't like that. You know, my... Um, I, most... Most things in life, I, I do not view as win-lose. We always, the, the best uh, things you can ever do in business is find the win-win. You know, wh whoever you're working with, if you're trading between countries, you find a way for both to win. If you're working with a partner in business, find a way for both to win. Uh, that uh, contest is set up as a win-lose and not something I want Apple to be a part of. You know, this... This question is zero sum, right? Win, win, lose. It, it has been at the core of a lot of the a lot of debates we're having about debates about trade, debates particularly around immigration, which I know Apple has strong feelings about, a strong yeah. experience with. So we want to talk a little bit about that uh, right after we take this quick break. 
obviously the uh, atmosphere, the rhetoric in the country around immigration uh, is very intense right now. Um, and I saw an interesting story about colleges reporting on the numbers for foreign students applying to the U.S. And there's been an appreciable decline, right? And that, that clearly seems to be uh, related to the rhetoric coming from the White House particularly. Apple's a company that employs a lot of immigrants. Um, what are you guys seeing on the front lines? Is it harder to recruit people to come here given the current political environment? Yeah, I, th I think on the, on the student visa piece, I think part of it is the rhetoric. I think part of it is the cost of college is too high. Right. And that not only affects uh, our folks domestically, but it affects the international as well. And uh, there are other international schools that are... Um, you know, becoming more competitive as well. But here's what we're seeing. I talked to a lot of folks in our company. The DACA situation is one that I am personally, as an American, deeply offended by. Um, the, the DACA situation is not an immigration issue. It's a moral issue. This is a moral. This, this is one that goes to the core of who we are as Americans. Uh, who among us would think that it's the right thing to do to kick somebody out of this country that came here when they were one, two, three years old, that have only known this country as their home, that know no other country as their home? This just doesn't make any sense. And so I don't like that the, the gun was ever fired here. It should have never been fired. In terms the of revoking gun. It should the, have the president never been should not revoked. have revoked it. it. The attorney general should not have revoked it. Whoever revoked it should not have done this. This is... And I, I don't see this as a partisan issue. This is not about whether you're uh, red or blue, conservative or liberal. Uh, this is about America. This is that simple. And so I'm very disappointed with both parties that they have not acted. have you been doing that you had met with president trump you were on you had different meetings with them talked about these issues you brought up daca what are you all doing now because it, it you 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 didn't think it would get this far presumably but what what do you what can you do now you spent a lot of time on all kinds of other things you know i was pressured i was just on the hill mm -hmm. uh, a few weeks ago two right. three weeks ago and this was a subject in every meeting i had mm -hmm. uh because at, at this stage the people who can change this are inside the beltway. And so all of us that feel passionately about this have to put our emphasis on those people that can vote. And we've got to bring them to action. How? Both parties, are both people privately are telling both parties, everybody I'm meeting with, regardless of whether they have an R by their name or a D, are telling me, that they do not want any of the DACA folks to leave this country. Right. Okay. But right. they're not doing anything. Right. And yeah. that has to change. So how? What, what can Apple or all the tech industry or people with some, you have some influence, what can you actually do? 
You push on Congress and you, you push on the administration. You're lobbying and, on this. Oh, absolutely. I'm personally lobbying on this. <laughs> I, mean, this is, I, I think that without rancor, people can discuss the future immigration strategy for the United States. And there will be many different <laughs> views on that. But that's worthy of a national discussion. But what is not worthy of a national discussion is whether to kick out two million people that have been here since they were young. That is not worthy of a discussion. Let me, let me bring in one. <laughs> I want to bring in one of those individuals. Um, Cesar Montalongo Hernandez uh, is, in fact, a, a DACA-eligible individual. Uh, uh, how, how do you feel about watching this play out? It's very hard, especially at a personal level, not knowing what is going to happen with your life. But at the same time, um, I'm an MD-PhD student, and that takes quite a lot of effort. So every day I have to get out and put my heart into everything I do, but without knowing what's going to happen. You're an MD-PhD student right now? Yes. Um, and you are, are you, are you DACA eligible? I mean, you're in DACA right now, yes? Yes, I'm currently, yes, I'm, I'm currently DACA, and my permit will expire in a few months in September. So you just quite literally have no idea whether you'll be rendered ineligible for everything that you're doing in your life in a few months. Right, that's correct. It's unthinkable that it's happening in this country. This is not who we are. It's not And what does it are. say to the rest of the world? Nothing good. Uh, you know, th think about our history as a, as a country, right? Um, we welcome everyone. I was in Ellis Island a few months ago, and in that hall, I would, everybody should go there, by the way, if you haven't been, you can feel the immigrants that have come through there when you're there. I mean, is that moving? And you think about uh, the conditions that they left, many of them uh, fleeing uh, a government that didn't care about them, or a monarchy that didn't care about them. Uh, many of them fleeing uh, religious persecution. Everybody had their own story. Some were seeking a better life, because America was the place where if you worked hard, you would get ahead. You had to commit, you had to work really hard, but if you did that, you would get ahead. And, and so that is the vision I have of America. And, and I still believe that. I mean, I'm, and I, I think that I believe that the right thing will happen here, but I'm very <clears throat> unhappy that we're having to go through the, the angst and putting him through what he's going through. He should not have to get up every morning wondering what's going to happen. We're one court ruling away from this crazy thing being turned yeah. back on. Um, one of the things that a lot of folks are thinking about right now um, is uh, what, what the companies they interface with and what tech they interface knows about them. <laughs> um, it's uh, front of mind right now. It's, it's a sort of huge kind of mounting controversy, I think, that's, that's uh, at the center of public life right now. We want to talk a little bit about where Apple is on privacy and whether my smartphone is listening to me uh, all the time uh, right after we take this break. Thank you.
in the in the wake of the news about uh, data scraping by Cambridge Analytica and, and Facebook, you had this to say recently, and I thought it was quite interesting. You said, it's clear to me that something, some large, profound change is needed. I'm personally not a big fan of regulation because sometimes regulation can have unexpected consequences to it. However, I think this certain situation is so dire, has become so large, that probably some well-crafted regulation is necessary. What do you mean? Yeah, um, look, we've, we've never believed that these detailed profiles of people that have uh, incredibly deep personal information that is patched together from several sources uh, should exist. That the connection of all of these dots, uh, that you could use them in such devious ways if someone wanted to do that, that, that this was one of the things that were possible in life, but shouldn't exist. Right. It shouldn't be allowed to exist. And, and so I, I think the best regulation is no regulation, is self-regulation. That is the best regulation. Because regulation can have unexpected consequences, right? However, I think we're beyond that here. And I, I do think that it's time uh, for a, a set of people to think deeply about what can be done here. Now, the cynic in me says, the cynic in me says, mm-hmm. um, you've got other tech companies that are much more dependent on that kind of thing than Apple is. And so, yeah, you want regulation here because that would essentially be a comparative advantage, that if regulation were to come in on this privacy question, the people it's going to hit harder aren't Apple, it's places like Facebook and Google. Well, the skeptic in you would be wrong. (laughs) Um, The the truth is, uh, we could make a ton of money uh, if we monetized our customer. If our customer was our product, uh, we could make a ton of money. We've elected not to do that. Because we don't... Our, our products are iPhones and iPads and Macs and, and HomePods and the watch, etc. And if we can convince you to buy one, we'll make a little bit of money. Right? right? But you are not our product. Right. You are our customer. You are a jewel, and we well, care. We, <laughs> we care about the user experience, and uh, we, we're not going to traffic in your personal your personal life. I, I think it's an invasion of privacy. Uh, I think it's uh, privacy to us is a human right. It's a civil liberty, and and something that is unique to America. You know, this is like freedom of speech and freedom of the press, and privacy is right up there for us. And so we've always done this. This is not something that we just started last week when we saw something happening. We've been doing this for years. Let's go to that. Uh, Privacy, an interview uh, I did with Steve Jobs with Walt Mossberg, and I did with him uh, right before he died, actually, where he was talking about this very subject. Privacy means people know what they're signing up for in plain English and repeatedly. That's what it means. I'm an optimist. I believe people are smart. And some people want to share more data than other people do. Ask them. Ask them every time. Make them tell you to stop asking them if they get tired of your asking them. 
Let them know precisely what you're going to do with their data. All right, let's talk about that. What happens now with Facebook, Google, the others? There's been a lot. There's been going to be Senate hearings, all kinds of things. Well, I, I don't think all companies are in the same position. Okay. Right. And so for, I think that uh, one thing that is necessary is for, uh, I think everybody needs to understand Silicon Valley is not monolithic. Right. Right. Um, I know it's easy to kind of group people that are the same market cap or that are big together and, and think of it like well, that. Lots of hoodies. But yeah, but, but, but life is really different than that. These companies are very different company to company. And so what, what I think has to be done, we have to think about how this, these profiles can be abused. And I might have a different view than you. I might be um, more on the privacy side than most, right? I, 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 and I suspect everybody has a personal different level of sharing that, they'll, that they will do. But everybody should know what they're doing. Everybody should know what they're giving up. And not only the specific data point, but the, the issue is more of the whole line that people can draw, right? It's the, when I know this plus this plus this plus this, I can infer a whole bunch of other things. And, and that can be abused. And it can be abused against our democracy. It can be uh, abused by an advertiser as well. Um, to me, it's creepy when I look at something and all of a sudden it's chasing me all the way across the web. I don't like that. <laughs> Particularly when I bought it. I, I think what has to be done is the, the type of information has to be looked at that companies can hold. I think the uh, connection and sources of data have to be looked at. When you own many different properties, when you're the owner of many different properties and I can take the information I learned about you from this property, add it to what I learned about you here and here and here and here, and there's no reasonable alternative for people. Right. This is not good. Or, or, but you also have third-party apps. Of course. That you have, yes. that they get, yeah. your apps get information from. And that was the issue, that's the issue around Facebook is a third-party app problem besides them collecting information. Um, so first, what would you do about, what are you doing more about your third party app to police them? Because I think policing is the big issue yeah. around Facebook. And then if you were Mark Zuckerberg, what would you do right now? We've always been, um, we've always been focused on curation. We've always believed in curation. Right. So we've always felt as a platform owner, that's a huge responsibility. Right. And that we should curate. And so we- You're a media company. Uh, whatever you want to call us, yeah. we curate. We, we believe that, um, that uh, we don't want porn on our app store. Mm -hmm. Why, we want families to be able to feel comfortable there. Um, we, don't, we don't want hate speech on our app store. Right? Um, and, we don't want the ability to recruit terrorists on the App Store. Right. And so we're looking at every app in detail. What is it doing? Is it doing what it's saying it's doing? Is it meeting the privacy policy that they're stating, right? And so we're always looking at that. Should we raise the bar even more? We're always looking at improving and raising the bar. 
but but we do carefully review police. each app and police now, and we don't subscribe to the view that you have to let everybody in that wants to, or if you don't, you don't believe in free speech. Mm -hmm. Which is very right. We don't yeah. believe that. Yeah. We don't believe that because we're like the the guy on the corner store. What you sell in that store says something about you. And if you don't want to sell that other thing, you don't sell it. It doesn't mean that you can't use an iPhone to go to your browser and go to some porno site if you want to do that. Mm -hmm. But but nobody does that. But, <laughs> but I'm not making fun of it. No, I but, know. but I'm just saying. But it's not what we want to put in our store. Right. We want kids to go to the store, right? right? Because it, kids, there's a lot of learning education apps in the store. And, and so we've always done that. We've um, worked for the music industry to code things explicit. And so a parent could say, I don't want my child to listen to explicit content. We've uh, made sure all the movies are coded in such a way where uh, you can say, I only want my child looking at G movies or, or, or whatever. Or uh, we have a parental control around apps. You can say, I don't want them on these certain apps. And, uh, and so this is something we've always felt you know, really well, Mark responsible Zuckerberg, for. Mark Zuckerberg, what would you do? What you would want? I do? Um, I wouldn't be in the situation. Okay. <laughs> A follow-up to that, right? So there's a Facebook app in the Apple Store, right? In the App Store. Um, is there a point at which you start to reevaluate that? Because the practices are, are, are something that you don't want to essentially the, be selling the, in your store. The question for us is, do they meet the, the guidelines of the App Store and do they meet their policy, right? And, but, but I think that well-crafted regulation could change that policy, right? And... And if that happened, or if we raise the bar some, then, you know, we have, we have to look at it. But uh... um, Let me ask the follow, one follow-up question because, uh, about sort of this idea of curation. Yeah. Uh, and then I want to get something from the audience. You, Apple TV is another platform. Um, it, it streams a bunch of different things. There's different apps. NRA TV is, is one of those things. And I should say, full disclosure, I work for a company called Comcast that runs NRA TV, right? So... Um, but you guys have this view, right, that, that it, you're not, you have a different view than a lot of Silicon Valley, that you are curating these things. One of the questions we got the most out on Twitter because of all the, yeah. you know, focus right now on the NRA and, and your uh, praise of the Parkland students was, why is Apple streaming NRA TV and how should we interpret that in the context of the kind of ethos that you just described? Yeah, it's a good question. First of all, we don't stream it. We don't stream it. We place the app in the app store so somebody can go in right. and download it and they stream the content. So the, the question on the, the, uh, that certain app is, we don't want to take a uh, view that throttles the public discourse on something, right? The pub public discourse is an important part of democracy. Discourse is, a democracy without discourse is not a democracy, right? And, and so, now, uh, do I like their tactics or positions? Obviously, no. Uh, it, and some of the things they've said are unbelievably distasteful. And I don't even think represent their, their members well, right? From the people that I know from... Uh, my heritage in the South and, and so forth. But 
their point of view, along with the alternate point of view, I think it's actually important for the public to hear that. And I, I wish it could be done in a not vitriolic tone and the, all of the accusation and personal attack that is on there. I don't subscribe to any of that at all. And you can bet that we continue to monitor. And uh, if it walks into the path of hate speech uh, oh, or some of these other things, then we're, we're cutting it off. It, right? it's, in some ways, it's sort of a perfect illustration of just how thorny this has gotten for everyone, right? Because yeah. Mark Zuckerberg is talking about, well, we're trying to figure out whether you know, calls to uh, ethnic cleansing against the Rohingya in Myanmar violates our terms of policy. Yeah. And you guys got to figure out, well, do, you know, th there's, you guys have a lot of power right now. Um, I, I want to take a... a but, but, in yeah. the, in the, but I do want to make this point, is in a, in a democracy, free speech has to have as wide yeah. a definition as possible. I agree with that, yeah. Right. It doesn't have to include hate speech, at least in my, my definition of it, right? And, and certainly our store isn't subject, we're not the government, it's not subject to that, to that rule. Um, but I, we do want to allow as wide a discourse as possible without stepping over the line, right? Um, we want to bring in an audience member, uh, Sarah Conklin, who uh, uh, works in, in social media uh, marketing. Uh, what's your question, Sarah? Um, I wanted to know what's something that we as individuals could do starting today to protect our own privacy and then start fighting for the privacy of each other. It's a great question. Uh, one, if I would make sure I understood the, the privacy policy of every app and website that you frequent. Every one of those. Uh, and I think that you know, the problem with these is they're 20 pages long and written by lawyers, and that, that is one of the problems in and of itself. They're not written in plain English because they don't want people to understand them. Um, but, but I do think it's important that, that people try to understand what it is that you're giving up. And I think in many cases you might elect to to do something different than you're doing, maybe go some to another business or whatever that has a policy that is more in line with your values. Uh, so I think that's the most important thing is to become uh, deeply aware. I would also, if you're very concerned about privacy, I'd go into private browsing mode. We place that in Safari, and so that'll uh, prevent some things from happening, uh, not everything. I would uh, think about blocking cookies, these little things that follow you everywhere you're going and, and, and so forth. Um, I would be, if you have kids or if you're a guardian, uh, I would be extremely careful as to what they're doing. And uh, because I think that the preying on kids are the sort of the worst thing in the world that uh, can occur. And, and I, that is something that I deeply worry about. Right, uh, Tim, uh, before we yeah. get to the next section, um, you were very strong on encryption. We just, yeah. just brought it up. The idea of protecting privacy yeah. is the most, and you went against the government, against yes. uh, the FBI. Today, same thing? 
Apple sticking with that? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The, the, here, let me give you the short version of this is the cyber risk for all of us individually and as a company uh, has gone up exponentially even since that occurred. Mm -hmm. The only way to protect your data is to encrypt it. There is no other way known today. Mm -hmm. And so if, if I were you, I would do business with no one that wasn't doing that. Now, it is a thorny issue from a law enforcement point of view because uh, they may want to know what you're saying and I don't have access to what you're saying. And my, my view is kind of simple is, uh, I don't think that you as a user expects me to know what you're telling people. Right. Mm -hmm. Right? I'm not eavesdropping on your messages and on your phone calls and, and, and and don't think I should be in that position. And so if they tried to uh, compel us as they did two years ago, they tried to force us to create a piece of software that would have, if stolen, opened hundreds of millions of iPhones in the world. We said, hey, there's lots of things technology can do. Uh, that one shouldn't be done. It should never be created. And, and so we refused. They said, you can't refuse, we can make you do it. We said, no, you can't. It's against the Constitution. And, and uh, right before they went to court, they dropped the case. And so if that same circumstance rose again, we would fight. Because this, again, is a value of America. Right? You should not be able to compel somebody to write something that, that is bad for civilization. Right. Right? This is fundamentally wrong. You talked before about your belief uh, in responsibility, corporate entity. And so we want to talk a little bit more about that uh, where we take, uh, after we take this quick break. Right. talked about problems that, uh, that Silicon Valley is not monolithic, but obviously the tone of tech against tech is pretty strong right now, the idea of their responsibilities. So what do you see the challenges and responsibilities for the tech industry going forward? I mean, you're one of its leaders. Again, you're not all the same people, but there is a sense that they really have to step up and grow up in a way. The, well, because tech has become such a large percentage of the economy, Generally speaking, uh, the problems of the country are the issues that, that tech needs to deal with, right? And so we talked about retraining earlier. Right. Uh, tech needs to play a major role in this. Uh, we didn't talk as much about diversity, but uh, tech needs to increase diversity in a major they way. They absolutely do. Right? Um, <laughs> tech needs to create jobs. Right, because the country needs jobs. Uh, that is a that's a major role. I I think that tech needs to help protect people's data and uh, become all pro privacy. Right, I would love to see that because I I think that would be an incredible gift to to mankind to do that. Tech needs to continue doing what it's always done as inventing tomorrow. And, and using the technologies infused with humanity to do things that are great for humanity, not just make things that can make money, right? You know, uh, 
we should be able all to live longer and live better. This should be a great contribution of tech. You know, tech can help solve some of the uh, diseases that have been thought of to be incurable. You know, artificial intelligence can help do this. Uh, and, and tech can help people uh, in education. You know, we talked about that earlier as well. And so for technology by itself doesn't want to be good or bad. It becomes good or bad based on the inventor. Right. What does it focus on? And, and so, but, but I'm really optimistic as I, as I look at it, because I see that some core technologies in the future and that are, that are already started today and deployed well, these things can make a marvelous difference in all of our lives. So core to AI. AI, AR is like that. AR can amplify human performance in a, in a huge way. It can make our conversation richer. Uh, you saw yesterday the, the idea you can dissect a virtual frog instead of a real frog. It, it, I mean, there's was, all kinds of it things. It was still gross. It was still it gross. It was still gross. <laughs> yeah? But, but uh, you it know, for, smell. The, it didn't smell in for the guy in the biology class that had, I could not do this. Right, right. Uh, I think I could do it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And uh, so I, I do think that many of these things, and we believe that wellness and health is a major contribution for Apple in the future, right? We're already doing that some through the watch today, uh, helping people stay active. Um, you know, burn some of those calories and, and, and this sort of thing, and also detecting heart rate, right? People have not, generally speaking, very few people in the population monitor their bodies in any kind of way. And yet, uh, we are uh, religious about changing our oil and rotating our tires and changing the air filter and all of these kind of things, and yet, this thing that we live in for whatever uh, our life is, we don't do as much on. And so I, I think we can make a huge contribution here. We haven't talked a lot about abroad and other countries, but are you worried? Because Americans have led the tech innovation boom and includes jobs, education, invented. Everything has been invented here that we are living in. Are you worried about it shifting? Because you said the inventor matters. Like China now is really pushing hard in terms of innovation. Other countries are. Is that, or is it just that's not the way to think about it anymore? I, I don't think about it like that. I, I don't think about uh, them or us. Or I, I think about us and that uh, working together, we can do a lot more than, than not working together. And, and so I, I believe one plus one is equal to three. Mm -hmm. Right, and uh, so that's the way I look We're at it. We're in a school, it's not the case, but go ahead. But, but, I, but I just don't view it as a win-lose, right? right? I, I, but do I, you want Amer uh, the U.S. companies to lead the way, continue to lead the way? Is there a absolutely. problem? Yeah. Absolutely. And can they with the education, training? Yes, I think we have the best universities in the world. I think we have uh, incredibly great people in the, in the United States. I think um, keeping... America, uh, making sure that America is welcoming to people. A big part of America's success is that we have welcomed people, that we welcome them not only uh, culturally, uh, we welcome their ideas, and that we're able to assimilate uh, different people from different walks of life on the same team. Because the products, the products of today and tomorrow will be global products. Mm -hmm. You know, and so you have to have people that represent the, 
the market that you're selling to. And so you need people from around the world. And so I think it's very important that, that we have that mindset. Um, and and I'm, I am optimistic that we will. Uh, current current um, issues aside, I, I think the, the arc for America points in the right direction. You know, part of... Part of responsibility or social contract for, for anyone, right, citizens, nonprofits, corporations, is how we interact with the government. Taxes is, is one part of that as well, regulation. Um, you know, Apple just announced this huge investment in the U.S., right? Repatriated all this money from abroad, paid a one-time tax fee. There's a question now, does that change how Apple works going forward? And the big argument about this tax bill was the U.S. tax code was uncompetitive and it forced companies to do things like incorporate in places like Ireland or the island of Jersey so that they could avoid the onerous rate. Now that that's changed, now the money's been brought back, does that change how Apple legally exists in terms of uh, where it's incorporated and what taxes it pays? Yeah, what it does, Chris, is that it allows you to take earnings that you are earning in other countries in the world. Maybe you're earning them uh, in Latin America or the Middle East or, or wherever you're selling your product. And it allows you to take those earnings and invest in the United States without a further penalty. Right, but is right. that a one-time thing or is that an alteration no, that's an ongoing thing. to the way that you guys that, are incorporated? That is ongoing, and that was the biggest thing in the tax thing from a corporate point of view. Again, for your viewers, I want to distinguish corporate versus right. individual. I, I, um, we took no position on individual right. because we would just be a part of the peanut gallery. We have no special expertise there. Uh, it's not something I would have done right, or in, in that way. But the corporate piece, I do believe, is good for America. Because I think what will, the result of it will be is America will have higher investments. Yeah. And, and that's, that's, that's essential. That's sort of the open empirical question. Um, back to our audience, we're gonna have one final question from the audience. Yeah. Julian Katz is a content curator for a local youth leadership program. What's your question? So my question is, knowing everything you know now, what would be the greatest piece of advice you would give to your high school self? <laughs> We're in a school, come on. Wow. Um, Mine would be less cowl necks, but move along. I would, I would tell myself that the joy is in the journey. For, um, and that the real purpose of life uh, everybody talks about find your purpose, find your purpose, find your purpose. The truth is we all have the same purpose. And we, so we should all quit looking. Our purpose is to serve humanity. Yes. And the, the, And so most people ask themselves the wrong question. The question they should be asking is how should I serve humanity? What will be my gift? And they should ask that pretty much every day because you can give small gifts and you can give large gifts and it doesn't have to be, certainly doesn't have to be money. Most of your gifts will never be money. Uh, they will be a gift of yourself and your passion, uh, your way of changing the world, improving the world for other people. And, uh, and so I wish I would have realized that sooner because I, I went through a period of time that I was rudderless uh, where... I thought I should be looking for my purpose. I looked under every sheet 
every behind every door, you know, and everywhere, and I couldn't find it. I thought, oh my God, there's something wrong with me. You know, I can't find it. And, uh, and then I found it in Apple. And I found a company that uh, believed at the company level that its job was to serve humanity. And, uh, and it's, it's that that has made all the difference for me, is, is just being a part of that. And uh, I wish, you know, I would have found it earlier. I wish somebody would have hit me over the head with it earlier. From the, yeah. Steve hit me over the head with it. It just took a little while. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Karen, I want to thank Tim Cook for joining us. And a big thanks to everyone participating here at the Ling Tech College Prep High School on Chicago's North Side. You can see highlights and information about the next hour of this revolution series at msnbc.com and recode.net. Our thanks again to everyone here in Chicago. Good night. Thanks for listening to this episode of Revolution. You can find more coverage of the interview on Rico.net, including a story I wrote about Mark Zuckerberg's response. Tim Cook is not the first Apple CEO to pick a fight with Facebook. If you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe to Rico Decode. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play Music, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Or just visit Rico.net slash podcasts for more. And if you have a minute, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell other people about the show. That helps them discover great interviews like this one. Now that you're done with this, you should check out our other Recode Radio podcasts. On Recode Media with Peter Kafka, you'll hear no-nonsense interviews with some of the smartest people in media and entertainment. I also host Too Embarrassed to Ask, where we answer all of your questions about consumer tech and the week's news. And on Recode Replay, you can find audio from all of Recode's live events, including the Code Conference and Code Media. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode, and thanks to our editor, Joel Robbie, and our producer, Eric Johnson. I'll be back here on Monday. Tune in then. Thank you.